The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. If you have your Bibles, we're looking at the love chapter. Um, Jackie, that's a big ask for us. So just if you do your math... She's asking for over $5,000 next week in the deacon's offering. So that's more than double of what we typically get in a deacon's offering. So if we're going to meet her big ask, then we're going to have to give twice as much that we would normally give in a deacon's offering next week. But I think we can do it. So let's, let's see what we can do. Um, beautiful what you're doing, Jackie. All right, let's give attention to 1 Corinthians uh, 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord God, you are love. And you have first loved us. And we ask that your love would break through the the clouds and the darkness of our lives and that we would be filled with compassion. That the very things that you tell us of what love is, we pray that those fruits would come out of our heart and that it will bring glory to you and good to mankind. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This text feels a bit like the Atlantic Ocean, and all I can give you is maybe a bucket. And, um, but I can, I know many of you, we, we preached through this. So in 2016, we did like four sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. If you really want to dig in, I think the most readable Edwards book that you could read is Charity and Its Fruits, and it's his sermons on 1 Corinthians 13, and they're powerful. Um, and so I recommend that to you if you want to dig deeper. There are 16 characteristics of love here, um, verses 4 to 8a. There's eight positive, eight negative and you can meditate on those. I was going to like give you a list of and break down all 16 things. I, I've kind of moved away from that a little bit as I've prepared this message. 
But the Bible does talk a lot about love, doesn't it? I mean, we're told to put on love, follow after love, abound in love, continue in love, increase in love, be fervent in love, be consistent in love, provoke each other to love, be sincere in love. And Tina Turner wants to know what's love got to do with it. And the answer is everything. Paul wasn't just being sentimental here. He wasn't just writing great prophetic, you know, poetic phrases about love here. And I don't think he had Jesus in the front of his mind when he wrote it. Even though Jesus epitomizes each of these 16 statements about love. I believe what Paul had in mind was more like something is rotten in Denmark. He's correcting a problem. He's addressing a self-centered spirituality. A church that's really about me. He's dealing with a church in Corinth where pride and envy kind of ruled the day. And church kind of became show and tell. Let me show you my gifts and let me tell about my gifts. And it became very chaotic where everybody, Paul has to tell them everything needs to be in decency and in order because it was becoming chaos. Years ago, I was on a, led a mission trip and we were in Appalachia, very poor area. And I had heard that at the beginning of the service that everybody just comes up front and they just all pray and it's very chaotic. And so the team was very young. They were all high school kids, middle school kids. So I warned them as their leader, whatever you do, you are not allowed to laugh. This is, you know, well, I prepared everybody except one person, myself. And when they started praying louder and louder and each trying to outdo the other with louder prayers at the front, it just became, to me, it just, it became comical. And I just was like, started snickering and giggling, like this is just totally out of control. You couldn't hear anything, I mean, except noise. And, and the whole team was being so good. And then I was the one to start chuckling. Not good. Um, but it was just chaos. So you get the picture, that's what was happening in Corinth. And Paul is showing them that love is the more excellent way. And so this love chapter is couched between chapter 12 and chapter 14, which are about the gifts. And the interesting thing is you can have gifts and not have love. You can have gifts and not be born again. Did not Saul prophesy? Didn't Jesus say that many will say to me, didn't I not cast out demons and do miracles in your name? And Jesus said, what? Depart from me, for I never knew you. So you can have gifts, you can speak in tongues, you can do great things and not have love, not even be born again. So he's showing them there's something more important than all these. And so you can tell how even 1 Corinthians 13 begins with listing all these gifts. I can have tongues. I can, I can have prophetic powers. I can have faith, remove mountains. And, and, you know, and all these things, and, and basically saying, I can do all these things, but if I have not love, children, you know your multiplication table? You're multiplying by zero. What's one times zero? What's two times zero? What's 40 times zero? What's 400 times zero? What's nine million times zero? It's always multiplying by zero. And so if you have not love, you have nothing to show but regret. Love is always the appropriate response. And the people here were multiplying by zero. They had these great gifts, but it was all self-centered. 
And so Paul's contrasting that. And at the end of the chapter, what he's going into is he gives these two illustrations, but what he's saying is, unlike the gifts, love is permanent. Prophecy, well, it's gonna cease. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, they will cease. And then he gives these two illustrations, and the first is a child-adult illustration. The spiritual gifts are like the immature child, but love doesn't go away as an adult. And so if you've got this gift of tongues, prophecy, or faith, but if you don't have love, you're just a spoiled brat who goes around showing everybody what you got, show and tell. In the second illustration, you've got the dim mirror, but love is the reality of seeing God face to face, being known and accepted and loved. And this chapter ends with this great picture of the vision of God, seeing God face to face. We know now in part we shall know fully even as I have been fully known. This is my dad's favorite chapter of the Bible. He has two sermons, my dad, and he likes to talk. Psalm 23 and 1 Corinthians 13. He just loves those, those two passages, and he loves to share these verses, but what he loves is the end of this, is the vision of God. You see, this idea is that heaven is a world of love, as Edwards has a whole sermon on that at the end of Charity and Its Fruits, and he says this, There in heaven this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory and beams of love. And there this glorious fountain forever flows in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. Kent Hughes, retired pastor now, said in that split second of recognition, Believers will experience more joy than the sum total of accumulated joys of a long life. They will behold the dazzling blaze of his being that has been, always will be, the abiding fascination of angels. Scripture and reason demand that we understand that it will be the greatest event of our eternal existence. The visio dei, the vision of God. That is what we need to be thinking about. But at present, as C.S. Lewis says, we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but it doesn't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rumbling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And so in light of that eternal reality, we need to put the big rock in first. Now, when you use that expression, children, put the big rock in first, have you guys ever seen this illustration where you have a big jar and you have all of these things like sand and stones and pebbles and different things, and then you have these big, one, one big rock. And you say, how are you gonna get all this stuff in the jar? And you let the children try and do it. Anybody ever done one of these things before? And what you discover is that unless you put the big rock in first, you will never get all the rest of the stuff into the jar. The big rock has to go in first. Well, I think it, when you think about 1 Corinthians 13, the future, that reality's gotta go in first. Because when I look at this chapter, I look at it like a trajectory. And the idea is that 
there's kind of the, the long term and then there's the near term and they work together. But you start, every, I mean, the, the struggle every day, every moment, every hour is to be patient and kind, right? But the commitment, the long-term trajectory of what you put in first is that love never fails. Love never ends. You start with the end. I am gonna commit myself to a church. I'm gonna commit myself to a spouse. I'm gonna commit myself to children. I'm gonna commit myself to certain things that love never falls is literally what it means. It never fails. So you put the big rock in first. That's what we start with. And yet we all have to admit, if we're honest, love is, this chapter is like prayer. Anybody feel good about their prayer life? You know, you instantly just talk about the subject and everybody kind of hangs their head a little bit. You know, you read these verses, everybody kind of hangs their head a little bit like, man, I, I gotta work on that. And the reality is we all have this problem and the problem is threefold. Me, myself, and I, it's a selfish problem. Tim Keller and his book on marriage, and we got a group of guys going through this. If you're interested in joining, let me know. We got a, a group on uh, Tuesday mornings. We're just starting this book on marriage. He says this, the main barrier to the development of a servant heart in marriage is the radical self-centeredness of the sinful human heart. Self-centeredness is a havoc-wreaking problem in many marriages, and it's the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It's the cancer in the center of a marriage. There it is. We're not surprised. And Dana Adam Shapiro, who he quotes, interviews all these divorced couples, and there was the same thread that led to the marital disintegration of these marriages, and this is what he said. Each spouse's self-centeredness asserted itself but in response, the other spouse got impatient, resentful, harsh, and cold. In other words, they responded to the self-centeredness of their partner with their own self-centeredness. Why? Self-centeredness, by its very character, makes you blind to your, to your own being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by that of others. The result is always a downward spiral into self-pity, anger, and despair as a relationship gets eaten away to nothing. Yikes. John Gottman, who's an expert on marriage, not, and he's written a lot of books. He's not a believer that I know of. Uh, they're still helpful books. He talks about the four horsemen. And the four horsemen aren't the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but the four horsemen that leads to this, this spiral downward in marriage is criticism, contempt, defensiveness, harsh humor, rolling in the eyes, and then stonewalling, just tuning one another out. Not exactly patient and kind and keeping no record of wrongs. So how do we deal with this? How do we get that big rock in first? Well, we have to come to the realization that Titus 3.3 is true about me and you. It's true about each of us. Our starting point is that Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's each of us. That's our nature. There's a little monster. It's called the me monster. <laughs> and that monster is hated by others and hating one another slaves to passions and pleasures, wanting what we want. So how do we right the ship? 
how do we fix this? Do we try harder? Should this message just be a little bit message of try a little harder, work with more grit? Is it by grit or by grace? Is it by God's help, a little bit of God's help? Or are we totally desperate for him this morning? That it has to be his help. And yet with his help, I have to work on this. We have to put that big rock in first. Well, here's how we do it. First, we've got to answer the question, who revolves around who? Who revolves around who? Is Jesus Christ the center of your orbit? Is he your son? And you're just one of many planets that revolves around him. And so you're trusting and following and submitting and recognizing it's about him. Or is Jesus like the moon? You like to know he's there, he's in the sky, and he revolves around me, isn't that great? And he keeps things from getting out of control and he keeps these tsunamis and hurricanes from hitting. If Jesus is revolving around you, and when he doesn't give you what your little sovereign heart wants, and then the storm hits, your greedy heart gets angry, irritated, lacks patience and endurance to bear and believe and hope when the storm comes. But if you're following Jesus and orbiting around him, he's the center of your universe, you know that he is working all things for good. We're traveling, what, 35,000 miles an hour through space right now or something like that? And he's working all things for good? And we're worried about these little things? You know that your afflictions are light and momentary. They're achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that's gonna far outweigh them all. You know that it's by many trials that we're gonna enter the kingdom. You know that you have to run a race marked out for you and each person's race is different and some are very, very hard. You know that discipline isn't pleasant but painful and later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. You know that patience must be completed or perfected. You know that hope doesn't disappoint us, that we inwardly groan as we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. If you're revolving around him, you know your life isn't your own, that we must lay down our life to gain it. Otherwise, we gain the whole world and lose our soul. We know the love of many will grow cold, but he who perseveres to the end, he who endures will be saved. And so, I think, um, you know, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was thinking, certainly this, before I really reflected on the passage, certainly it must be talking about, you know, the big sacrifice of your life. Lay your life down, risk it all, you know, jump on the grenade kind of, kind of love, you know. I didn't really find that in this passage. Do you see anything about jumping on a grenade? It's actually much harder than that, you know. What I really see is first is that keep that long trajectory view, the seven to 70 years from now. Start with the end. Love never fails. So work backwards. Think with me for a minute. Just look at verse eight and then look backwards. I'm making a commitment that love will never fail. That love will endure all things. That love will hope all things. And the interesting thing about this word, all things, this word in Greek can also mean always. I kind of like that idea. Love bears always. 
Love believes always. Love hopes always. Love endures always. It's a commitment. Put the trajectory in view first so that when it comes to being the daily stuff of back to verse four, being patient and kind and not envying, not boasting, not being arrogant and rude, those are more the day-to-day, the hour-to-hour, the moment-to-moment. But the other to me is more long-term trajectory because here's the reality. We have no idea what's gonna happen to any, the, when, when is the phone call gonna come? I mean, there are amazing things, difficult things that happen in this life. Children who break parents' hearts, parents who break children's hearts, cancer that rocks worlds, physical handicaps that are permanent, limitations that are permanent, tragic car accidents, career disappointments, unemployment, the chances that that at some point one spouse will have to totally take care of another spouse. That's probably likely and should be in your head that if you're married when you committed to this, that at some point it's probably gonna be one of us completely caring for the other and the other has nothing to give. Are you willing to commit to that into the 70 year trajectory? That's what I mean by love never quits. That's the commitment we gotta make long term. Now we can start to talk about love as patient and kind. But get the long term in first, because I think people don't even make the commitment there. That when that phone call comes, and they come from your parents or from a family member, and you get these, these things that happen in the email and the urgent prayer request, they happen every week. And so we have to get the long term view first. One of my morning readings this week, reading through Genesis, reading through Chronicles, and I'm just reading about the life of Abraham. And by the way, one of the brothers gave the best exhortation in front of the whole presbytery, one of the ruling elders, and he was talking about reading First Chronicles. And he's reading these genealogy, and the first nine chapters of Chronicles is just genealogy after genealogy after genealogy after genealogy, and you think, this is so boring. But if you're reading Genesis at the same time, God has just made a promise. You're gonna bless the world. And through you, all the offspring of the earth are gonna be blessed. And you get the Chronicles, and now you're reading chapter after chapter to say, hallelujah, Genesis 12, been fulfilled. Genesis 15, been fulfilled. Genesis 17, been fulfilled. Read First Chronicles in new light. He was saying how excited he was and kind of recognizing, wow, God is fulfilling his promise. And so when we read these passages of scripture that seem harder, we can connect the dots. I mean, I was just reading Genesis 23 this week. You ever heard a sermon on Genesis 23? You ever read a blog post on Genesis 23 or a tweet? No, because nobody talks about it. You hear about the life of Abraham, you hear the cool stories. Letting Lot have first pick of the land. Abraham rescuing Lot with 318 of his mightiest men going and kicking some butt and getting Lot back, right? We love that story. And then you've got you know, him offering tithes to Melchizedek and then interceding for Lot and praying for Sodom and Gomorrah and believing the promises of God and God then walks between the pieces to prove that he's gonna fulfill the promise and, and then he's willing to offer up his, his only son whom he loves at Mount Moriah. We love all those, but Genesis 23 just says, 23 verse two, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, 
And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. Here's Genesis 23 for you. Whole chapter about buying a plot, a little piece of land so he can bury his wife. That's it. That's love. But it's also faith. That's the only piece of land that Abraham got in his whole life. And God's been promising almost every chapter, you're going you're gonna to inherit the land. You're going to inherit the land. You're going to inherit the land. And he buys this little plot a lot, a, a plot, a cave to bury his wife, and he's going to be buried next to her. Hebrews just says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. Where's home? Where's home? You could tell where it was for Paul. It was seeing him face to face. Get the long-term view in first. We have to have that. So we gotta be prepared for difficulties that will come. But the other is, what about sin? Let's not forget about sin either. We're all wrestling with sin. And you read the Bible and you see many people doing hurtful, shameful, awful things. Sometimes the people you love the most will hurt you the most. Chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is a chapter on perseverance. Here's how it ends. Nevertheless, through the temptations of Satan and the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measures of their graces and comforts, having their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. They hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments on themselves. Then it says in chapter 18 about assurance. True believers may have their assurance of their salvation. Divers way shaken meaning in diverse ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by, by neglect, ne negligence in preserving of it by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit by sudden and vehement temptation by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. I'm talking about depression. And yet they are never destitute of that seed of God and the life of faith, the love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which by operation of the Spirit this assurance may in due time be revived and by the which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. Do you believe this is true? Do we believe this as brothers and sisters in Christ so that when other brothers or ourselves, when we fall into sin, are we gonna love each other with a love that never quits? Are we gonna love each other with a love that, that endures, that hopes, that believes, that's gonna bear with always, recognizing that Westminster Confession of Faith is true to Scripture and that we will, there are gonna be difficult things that we're gonna go through as a body of Christ. Paul put it like this, we urge you brothers 
Here's his threefold counseling. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. So we've got to determine what category are these people in. Do they need to be admonished? Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And then he says, be patient with them all. Whatever category they're in, love is what? Patient. Be patient with them all. Spurgeon said, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, not to admire their beauties, not to remove their deformities, nor to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God... That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You see, this idea of love is not irritable. It's really a better translation. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love has no ledger. It's the word for accounting. It's a ledger term. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And the Bible says this is what Jesus did. It says that when Jesus came, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He, Jesus, was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Love kept no record of wrongs, imputed the the wrongs to Jesus, and Jesus imputed his righteousness to us. And so we have to remember that, getting the big rock in first, and then when it says, you know, love is patient and kind, doesn't boast, doesn't envy, we are what we are because God made us. God has gifted us. The big rebukes throughout the book of Corinthians again and again is they're puffed up. Four times he keeps telling them they're puffed up. And he tells them here that that's the problem. They're arrogant or does not envy or boast. It's it's not arrogant. And, And the call throughout the book ends here is love is patient and then ends with enduring all things. And in the middle of it bears all things. It's a lot about being, I mean, I was waiting for the big one, you know, that you'd, you know, come and rescue people on a ship and, you know, lay your life down and, you know, just be patient, just bear all things, just endure all things. Like, that's a lot harder. But when we keep the long-term trajectory in view, how does God treat us? He did the big, but he's patient with us, merciful. And we're to be kind to one another because Jesus, it says, has been, we're to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another because that's what God has done to us. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so now we're to have this fragrance that we take around with us. It's the fragrance of love, that we are one, we've been won over by his love, and now we too wanna love others. And so I can't give you all the different breakouts of this. 
encourage you to meditate and reflect on it. But I can tell you, Jesus lived these out perfectly. And none of us have or ever will. That's why he loves us. He came and died for us. And in him, we find life. So give yourself to him this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you first loved us while we were rebels, sinners, godless enemies, running away from you. You came to us, pursued us, and to think that you would not only die for us, but you clothe us and give us life. Lord, we thank you that you've taken away our shame and we can say, Lord, you put a a robe on us and a ring on our finger and sandals on our feet. You've restored us and given us identity as children of God that we would cry out, Abba, Father, that we are dearly loved children. Forgive us for thinking that we're orphans and that we've been forgotten. Lord, your plan is perfect for us. Help us to trust you and to wait upon you. And give us grace in the difficulties of life right now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to do something different in closing. We're going to sing our last song, but I would like us to repeat this thing in the back of the bulletin. Does everybody have a bulletin? This is not in the PowerPoint, so you need this after the sermon. I want us to do this reciting together of these Proverbs just to sink these truths into our head and then we'll sing the great hymn of the faith by Martin Luther. But let's stand together and we'll we'll do this responsive reading from 1 Corinthians 13 and then we'll sing our closing song. So this is just driving this home with the Proverbs. Let's read this together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Love is not arrogant or rude. The poor use the trees, but the rich answer rightly. Love does not insist on its own way. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance are the way of evil and perverted speech by hate. Love rejoices with the truth. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. The gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Love endures all things. The good sense makes one so to anger, and it is the glory to overlook and offense. Love never ends.
Amen.